You're tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Constance Mallinson, an artist and art historian. Are you an art historian? It's all rather intermeshed, but I consider myself a more of a critic or writer okay. on the contemporary scene. And uh, of course, you know, you have to know your art history to, to do all that, but not a historian per se. An expert, nonetheless. I'll use that for shorthand. <laughs> so we'll be talking about an exhibition in the Brand Library and Arts Center. In Los Angeles, basically. And the title of the exhibition is Mapping the Sublime, Reframing Landscape in the 21st Century. Now, Constance has a painting in this exhibition, but she caught my eye because of the catalogue essay that she wrote for the exhibition, and which will form the basis for much of our conversation today. So welcome, Constance Mallinson. Thank you. And welcome to WPKN Radio. So happy to be here. I think we should start by talking about the sublime as a, as a philosophy that you've just told me covers and applies to many forms of art. I'm just going to leave it now up to you to tell our listeners what that's all about and then how it applies to sublime painting and to landscape painting in particular. Well, the sublime is really a theory that was formulated in the 18th century. So it is not an art movement. It is more a theory that's been used to describe a certain approach to art or approach to literature and music. In the 18th century, mid-18th century, Edmund Burke, who was a philosopher, said that art that is sublime refers to a greatness beyond measurement or calculation. It is art that is vast in scale, basically ungraspable. In art, a sublime work produces the strongest emotions the mind is capable of. Typically in 18th, 19th century art that took the form of producing some sort of shock and awe in the viewer, often terror was the quality of the sublime that was being sought by these artists. Something that was chaotic, as I said, awe and wonder. And we see this particularly in early romantic paintings. Turner's mm. paintings were a prime example of Burke's sublime. So if you think about Turner's paintings of shipwrecks and storms at sea, all this kind of scary imagery of, uh, you know, what happens when the boat's going down. And there's the famous story of Turner lashing himself to the ship's mast mm. so he could uh, be surrounded by these storms and really get a feel for the drama and emotion of that situation. Turner was followed a little bit later by artists who painted large paintings of volcanoes going off, mountain vistas, crashing waterfalls, ice at sea, and even battle scenes were considered sublime scenes. Avalanches were were big topic or subject for painters, reaching its apotheosis in painting in the mid-19th century. Now, is this throughout the world, America, Europe? Europe and the States, yes. Mm. But in the States in the mid-18th century, the arts were pretty young. So artists still went to Europe to train and mm -hmm. to absorb the, the new ideas that were being 
put forth. Also, Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher about the same time, was working with his treatises on the sublime. And he talked about them in terms of excess, anything that's excessive and beyond our comprehension. He believed that encounters with this excessive imagery or experiences um, improved the mind, improved the character. So you had this terrifying encounter, you pulled back from it. He believed it improved our reasoning powers as humans. Because it stretched the imagination? Yes, it was beyond imagination, really. We had to think cosmically, Mm. vastness, certainly the spiritual was tied up in this, transcendence. You know, even Beethoven, his masterpieces, these were sublime pieces of music. These were dealing with phenomenon, probably inspired by nature primarily, that were really bigger than we are. Constant, there's this this element of terror and fear and awe. Shock and awe is a good way to... uh, uh, One of my favorite examples is Frederick Church's paintings of Niagara Falls in Mm -hmm. the American painter, mid-19th century. These huge paintings, almost life-size, as if you were standing in the precipice at Niagara Falls and seeing this immense amount of water tearing over the landscape. Other painters, Thomas Moran, went out west and painted the Grand Canyon, also something people had never seen that kind of grandeur in nature before. And so America itself was just ripe with these sublime landscapes, new and powerful and big, and of course, ready for the taking which we can get into a little bit later. Just a sec. There's two things. One is the actual grandeur in nature that you could go to Niagara Falls and see. And the other then that is a translation of that experience into whatever the art modality is. Exactly. And I, in my essay called Landscape Art, the Constant Companion of the Sublime, Obviously, you know, pictures traveled. Not everybody was able to go go up in the Alps and see the icy mountains. So the painters translated this into a much more accessible form. And these paintings traveled to museums and uh, were very popular attractions Mm -hmm. in the mid-19th century. Now, that's to be distinguished from the beautiful. I think we Mm. need to make the distinction between the sublime and the beautiful. Mm. Uh, The beautiful was something that was seen as pleasant, accessible, non-threatening. The sublime is destabilizing. Mm. You, You don't get a feeling of destabilization from gazing on a beautiful flower, for example, or a, a painting of a garden. And Kant thought that the sublime was only for men to experience. Women were seen as too delicate for this situation. You know, they might be overpowered and faint or whatever. So women were relegated to simply the appreciation of the beautiful. And men were the primary audience for this sublime experience. There's another very famous painting, early 19th century, by the German Caspar David Friedrich, 
this man front and center standing on top of a mountain but you only see his back and he's mm-hmm. facing this immense landscape of a mountain range and and fog and it's called wanderer above a sea of fog and here he is on the top of the mountain looking out over this vast uncontrolled landscape uh, having this experience possibly even having his manhood reconfirmed his dominion over nature his his masculinity his power i tend to see some of the early discussions of this tied to uh, patriarchal structures mm. and uh, but that's kind of a whole other i had curated an exhibition called the feminine sublime a couple of years ago but that's a whole other topic what's interesting man sort of matching himself to nature not overpowering it but it's conceivable that man could overpower this sublime nature. Yes, the idea was that once he pulled back from this frightening experience, this destabilizing experience, he regained control of his faculties and his power and dominion were confirmed. And you could argue that this was important even in terms of uh, colonial expansion mm. or just the conquest of nature with technology there are many ways that man asserted his power over nature so i think that sublimity played into that process you know you had to experience this being overwhelmed and then you had to pull back and and basically say well but we're we're in control here So it's a bit of a paradox yeah as i said in my catalog essay the sublime is a controlled experience of the uncontrollable yeah yeah does that make sense yeah. yeah yeah it does and the man standing there and saying i just want to get a measure of what this is and knowing that i will now be in control i will not be overpowered by nature exactly and yet there was respect for nature the anthropocene is is the overpowering of all of that now and gone this, too far <laughs> that's what i want you to maybe talk about is dominion isn't the same as domination is it it's a different word i don't know so interesting so w- when you're having that sublime experience it's beyond words Yes, yes it is. There are a lot of paradoxes. Mm-hmm. Uh it is beyond words, it's a vastness beyond understanding and yet what do humans do? Mm-hmm. We try to understand things. We try to frame that experience and make it understandable. In art history in the past 150 years, even the abstract expressionists in the 1950s corralled ideas of the sublime to describe large-scale abstract paintings i'm sure everybody's familiar with jackson pollock's mm-hmm. large teeming chaotic swarms of brush strokes and drips and that is a sublime image it's it's a, it's it's chaotic mm. and so even the mid 20th century artists use that terminology to describe their abstract art so it moved on mm. from just a landscape representation yeah, yeah. to to something abstract so mark rothko and of course this was the aftermath of the atomic bomb what could be more sublime than an atomic bomb mm. so let's go then from the background that you've established for us 
about the sublime in nature and the response to it by art. The replication or representation of that experience. Okay. okay. So now let's talk about the exhibition that your essay refers to. Talk about why this exhibition came into being now. The exhibition's called Mapping the Sublime. There were two curators. I was not a curator, just to mm -hmm. be clear. I'm a participating artist. Lawrence Geip and Beth Waldman put the exhibition together, uh, started about a year and a half ago. In their own work, they were finding a, uh, a confluence of other artists redefining the sublime for the present. I've given mm -hmm. you some background on mm -hmm. the historical sublime. Right. You know, now it's, it's expanding. So we have subgenres of the sublime. We have the techno sublime, which would be the bigness of technology. How many people can wrap their mind around the internet? Uh, the internet. Yeah. It's Timothy Morton, British writer, uh, kind of renamed the techno sublime and, and some of the newer forms, a hyper objects, objects that are just too big for us to understand. So you can see how that connects to the historical ideas. We have the eco sublime, which is climate change, news images of floods, tornadoes, fires, high temperatures, um, much bigger than we are, vast beyond our understanding and beyond our control. And we have the industrial sublime, the scale of industry. I mean, look at a, a petrochemical plant sometimes. Things that just get bigger and bigger and bigger. War. And the war yeah. sublime. Okay. The images coming from Ukraine, for example. Mm. You know, it's just jaw-dropping, the scale of this destruction. Right. There's the capitalistic sublime, the face of hypercapitalism mm. and finance and money that's in crypto and uh, all the machinations of finance is a kind of sublime. It's so big, it's beyond our comprehension. Constance Mallinson is talking about the sublime in today's landscape painting. This is Tidings on WPKN Radio. This is the climate that contemporary artists find themselves in. You know, these are newer manifestations of this sublime theory. And so when Beth and Larry were putting the show together, these were some of the things that they were seeing in the art that mm -hmm. they were researching. Much of it does deal with a climate catastrophe, the trauma on the earth that we're experiencing due to hyperconsumption, pollution, all this sort of thing. The bulk of the exhibition explores it. It asks questions that are generated by that experience. You mentioned the Anthropocene with the age of human domination. Humans now outnumber any other species. We're the, the major force on the planet right now. It's what we do that matters most. And, and many of these artists have, like myself, have worked with the landscape for, for me, for 50 years. For me, it would be impossible to ignore what's going on in nature. It's too easy to ignore if you surround yourself with just pretty images. If, you know, if you're only doing the Sierra Club calendars and the, um, the wave paintings, as a friend mm -hmm. of mine used to call it. So I think I speak for many of the artists in the exhibition as well, that uh, 
you know, they, their work pointedly uh, engages ideas of an imagery. What is then the modern, the Anthropocene response to seeing those images, the landscapes themselves? Is it the same response, but just shifted a few degrees? Or is it horror, grief? That's Mm. a very good question. Many artists were paid by the railroads in this country to go out and bring back beautiful, sublime pictures of the West to Mm. help settle the West. Photographers, too. I mean, photography was really coming into its own at that point. So you had Timothy Sullivan, who was paid by the railroads to go out and uh, take these grand pictures of the American West. And this, in turn, definitely facilitated the expansion of Mm. the American empire into the West. So, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly for the artists in this show, we're starting from a point of awe and respect for nature. The problem is it's disappearing. So, you know, how do you deal with that loss of this nature and wilderness? How do we understand it? How do we make it visible? Each of these artists in the show are conscious of that loss. Anybody who's working with landscape imagery has a profound respect for nature. I mean, profound adoration for the natural world. The adoration in those days was for nature as it is. The respect and adoration now is for nature as it was. Absolutely. That's, that's very well said. Very well said. Nature as it was and as it's becoming. Yeah. These artists in the sex exhibition are bearing witness to this situation. Yeah. So if we were to just paint uh, pretty landscapes, we wouldn't be getting the full picture. So we're exposing that hidden situation behind the landscape. So that's what reframing landscape in the 21st century means? I would say so. The meaning that we actually derive from landscape art depends on how the culture views nature at that moment. Yeah. And landscape, I like to think, is the barometer of our anxieties about our relationship with nature. Here's something we love. We uh, derive constant inspiration from, and yet it's being destroyed. I believe there's 19 artists. There are multidisciplinary artists. Yeah. It's not just painting. We have photographers, artists working with text and image and audio, video. Absolutely. This might be a place for me to talk about my piece. Yours, and then if you could talk a little bit about some of the others as well. I mentioned that I had a a long history of working with the landscape. I have done um, large-scale panoramic landscapes, I mean, 18-foot paintings that were composed of uh, uh, photo images, but painted. More recently, my work has centered on objects I find walking through the landscape. And of course, I'm an urban dweller, so you can only imagine. You're in Los Angeles? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I take a daily walk. That walk exposes me to many, many things in the landscape. My most recent work are painted depictions of these huge accumulations of the stuff that I find. So it's a lot of post-consumer waste, tons of plastic, 
I bring it home. I set mm-hmm. it up in my studio and I create these large scale compositions. The idea, of course, is to reflect and critique our hyper-consumptive society. But for this exhibition, I wanted to try something different. I had been finding a lot of styrofoam packaging. I began painting images of disappearing places, endangered animals, painted directly on the styrofoam block. I see. So the medium is the message. (laughs) medium is the message and the message is the medium the title of the piece is it's amazon stupid and there's actually a a long piece of styrofoam with an image of the amazon river in there so Mm -hmm. it's a little more kind of in your face transgressive piece for me how big is it? There are maybe 30 or 40 of these blocks with these paintings. And I arrange them kind of like a ruin. So mm-hmm. they're sort of haphazardly strewn on top of each other and sort of uh, scattered a bit. Discarded objects, stuff I pull out of trash cans. So I don't know if shock people is the right word, but that's to uh, jolt people at least to say, wow. You can talk about any of the others. Absolutely. Just two of my favorites. One of the curators, Lawrence Guy, he has uh, in his career addressed themes of industrialization and the myths of progress, archival imagery and uh, vintage publications um, and photos that deal with, say, the military industrial complex, a lot of war imagery he's used. So in, in the show, He researched Russian drone photographs. They're quite large. One is the Battle of Damascus, I believe, and um, and elsewhere, some of these, uh, if you also think of the historical battle scenes, I mean, there's a genre of uh, battle paintings, epic military uh, paintings. And so I think he's referring a bit to that. And Uh, But he also has a large painting of an abandoned mine in the Soviet Union and uh, in Siberia. And uh, he talks about that in terms of humanity's relentless intervention into nature. These enormous waste sites. And again, it's sublime. It's vast. It's it's. Yeah beyond our comprehension and uh is there anyone else in the exhibition you could mention before yeah photographer luciana abate she mm-hmm. is an argentinian artist she does very large-scale photo-based manipulated landscapes or photo collages that juxtapose natural images with man-made objects and in this exhibition large photographs of glaciers sort of floating, get the sense that they're kind of broken away and floating in the ocean somewhere. And um, I love those because they were very painterly in in their approach. She would impose, say, a very colorful background to the glacier. You might see a bright pink background, which is not natural, of course, but she's manipulating the image for a certain effect. So they're very formally impressive, beautifully composed. There's a majesty to her imagery that reminded me of, again, the 19th century Americans who, you know, actually went uh, into the Arctic areas and painted these uh, vast seas of ice with a very different meaning, because yeah. at, at that point, they weren't melting. So they were 
interested in the terror of that icy landscape, whereas she's tapping into that, that memory of that, but with also the an additional meaning of catastrophe for the world, for the globe. In keeping with the whole sublime uh, philosophy, for all tend to be very large pieces, do they? Well, those are, mm. um, but not everything in the exhibition. Mm, okay. I mean, there's some modest scaled work as well, smaller photographs as well. So there's a more mm-hmm. intimate interaction with the image. Uh, so th- there's a nice range there. As an artist, I think, you know, I'm, of course, constantly evaluating, as are the others in the show, uh, what our role in the culture is and, um, you know, what can we do? What can we do about the situation? We, we definitely are um, showing people what's going on. We are yeah, making, bearing, bearing witnesses. Doing we're bearing something. witness. That's uh, doing something. So, yes, we're making it visible. The world is a chaotic undifferentiated mass of experiences and images and so we isolate it we bring it to a place where you can uh contemplate it where you artists are just one sphere of influence in the culture Mm -hmm. and um i always say you have to see something before you can change it and so artists make us see something Mm-hmm. Uh, we we make it accessible, we make it engaging so that the viewer becomes conscious. Uh, otherwise, we can go through life barely conscious of these things. We're busy. You know, artists, I think, very generously give their time. It's free to uh, enlighten us uh, about what's going on. And um, art is just one link in the chain. Mm-hmm. We're acting in tandem with science, with technology. And uh, none of those things on their own is monolithic enough to deal with this thing. Artists are really uh, in the domain of the contemplative. The viewer has some responsibility too. The artists in the exhibition have done a lot of heavy lifting. It takes a lot to make this work. We've done our best to help the viewer to engage with the ideas uh, in the work, with the aesthetics in the work, to view aesthetics as a kind of stepping stone to entering into the ideas of the work. Um, But I think it's really important when those issues are being expressed and presented that conversation follows. the, The connective tissue, one layer of connective tissue, is the conversation which is what we're doing. Exactly. And the art is, uh, you know, one of the easiest ways to uh, start those conversations. You're yeah. standing in front of something that's right. powerful and impactful and uh, startling in many cases, either by the scale of it or the nature of the imagery. Um, you know, these, these things are meant to uh, engage your senses and your mind. And so it, uh, if you're willing, it is a great place to uh, start the conversation and hopefully some sort of action eventually that comes out of that. So, yeah, the, um, and, and I, sometimes I go into complete despair mode on that one. So, um, but what, what I would like to do, because uh, we really do have to end, is two things. I'd like to thank you. Could you um, just tell people 
how they can know more about your work and the work of this of this exhibition. Could you direct people to you if you have a website? I presume you do. I do have a website. And and what is that? And what is the website for the exhibition? But if they Google Brand Library, B R A N D Library in Glendale, California they'll come up with the website and it will have all the information on the exhibition and um, they can see all the images. They can read about the artists. And um, my website is just constancemallinson.com. And you can contact me through my website. I'm pretty good about responding. I'd be more than happy to take any questions from uh, interested people. Well, thank you very much. Constance Mallison, artist, writer, and curator talking about her own work and the exhibition at the Brand Library and Arts Center in Glendale, California, called Mapping the Sublime, Reframing Landscape in the 21st Century. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been tuned to Tidings, which you can hear again on the second Wednesday of the month at this time and any other time at all on hazelkahn.com. Thank you for listening to WPKN. I'm Hazel Kahn. (music) 